Well, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14, we've been there a couple of times already, but we will look at this a little more in detail today. And this message today really marks the halfway point or so in our series on Satan and his schemes. And so I want to get back to this text, which is really a very important text for us. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, just to keep us grounded here for a minute, I want to make sure that you remember that this series is not meant to depress you. It's not meant to frighten you. Rather, understanding what the scriptures say about God's enemy and our spiritual enemy should have some positive effects for you. So before we really get into this text, I want to tell you some of these positive benefits. I'll give you five of them of hearing these sermons on Satan and the schemes. First one, you should be spiritually stronger in general. You should be spiritually stronger in general. Keeping your enemy always in your sights is much better than having him behind you where you can't see him. You want him in sight. You're more spiritually aware this way. There's a second positive effect. You should be more mindful of Satan's schemes in the world. You should be more mindful of Satan's schemes in the world. This helps you understand that Satan is active. He's active in the world and that you're wary that the news headlines do not tell the whole story. There's always a story behind them. There's an invisible battle going on. Here's a third positive effect. You should recognize the original source of your own sinful tendencies. You should recognize the original source of your own sinful tendencies. Knowing Satan's schemes gives you better insight into yourself. When you're about to do that thing that you remember hearing taught, oh, that's a scheme of Satan. I don't want to do that. It helps you. Here's a fourth positive benefit. You should be more intent on being part of spreading the gospel. You should be more intent on being part of spreading the gospel. Satan is not only the spirit of Antichrist, he is anti-gospel. He is anti the truth of Christ. And yes, Christ said he will build his church, but let it be said that this successful effort was using you, not despite you. One more positive effect, you should be less inclined to deception and more inclined to discernment. You should be less inclined to deception and more inclined to discernment. This is what the New Testament calls spiritual alertness. Now, this text in Isaiah 14 that we just read, this is a text we've gone to a couple of times in the last weeks, and we'll probably be back there again. We spend a few moments here, just for a little while, not not too long this morning. Our usual practice is the verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture, but again, this topic necessitates kind of a broader look at the whole Bible. Now, I want to remind you, here in Isaiah 14, particularly these three verses, we we see two layers, a layered examination. The first layer speaks of the wicked king of Babylon, 
And the second layer speaks of Satan, the one characterizing the other. They are like one another. We know this layering is occurring because there are things said of the king of Babylon which cannot be true of a mere mortal man. Now, certainly the pride of the king of Babylon is like unto Satan, but some of the actual statements about him can only be true of Satan. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. This chronicles the fall of Satan, the day star. Day star is the Hebrew term Helel, shining one, means specifically the morning star. The Latin translation refers to the planet Venus, which appears in the evening and in the morning. It is the brightest object in the sky, except for the sun and the moon, and it is often translated in Latin, Lucifer. We've talked about this in the past. That's been traditionally applied as a proper name. We don't take it as that. It's really more just the day star. It's a description. What is the description? It is the brightest thing in the sky, except for the sun and the moon, which reflects the sun. In other words, the day star is the greatest of all of God's creation, the brightest, the the most amazing, and is second only to whom? To God himself. Now, verses 13 and 14 tell us Satan's objectives. What are his true heart goals? What does he long for? What motivates him? And that's really our topic today. And I have two missions I'd like to accomplish, a short one and a longer one. First, I want to show you the five objectives of Satan. We'll spend a brief time on those because they form a foundation for our second mission this morning. And that is, I want to tell you Satan's story. I want to tell you Satan's story because in his story, we see these five objectives being carried out in his attempt to fulfill his sinful desires. So first, let's look at the five objectives of Satan. They're easily identified by five first-person singular verbs in uh, Hebrew. They're one word each. They're translated into English as I will, and then a verb after that. We could label each one of these I will statements of, of Satan's heart of, uh, as an objective. But first of all, I want to point something out. Did you notice that God is all-knowing and he knows the very heart of Satan? And Satan here is not condemned for anything he said. He's not condemned for anything he did. He is condemned for all eternity for something he thought. That was sinful enough. That was the sin. The haughtiness of his heart being lifted up against God. So here's his five objectives. The first objective, to usurp God. To usurp God. He says, I will ascend to heaven. Verse 13. It seems that Satan was originally created as the leading cherub, the head angel of all. Ezekiel 28 tells us this. He was assigned on earth with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but he desired more. He desired to occupy the place of God in heaven. He was assigned to earth, but he desired to be in heaven, occupying the place of God. That's not all he wanted. There's four more. The second objective, first, usurp God. Second objective, dominate creation. His objective is to dominate creation. He says in the second I will statement, I will set my throne on high above the stars of God. Satan was the chief angel. The stars of God refer to other angels. They're called the stars of God in Job 38.7 and in other places in Scripture. 
But if he's already an angel, if he's already one of the stars, to be above the stars, there's only one option. That means to be in the place of God, to be seated on the throne of God. Being second in command was no longer good enough for him. He had to be first. There's a third objective he has, or a third I will statement, and that is to replace Jesus. To replace Jesus. He said in the end of verse 13, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. The mount of the assembly, this is the place of ruling the earth. The mount of assembly is the center of God's kingdom rule and and that is Mount Zion, that is Jerusalem. When God rules on earth, it will always be from Jerusalem. And you notice this, God, God is in heaven and Satan would be in his place and Christ will be on earth and Satan would be in his place. Satan wants to replace Messiah. He's already tried once. He's already tried. He tempted Jesus to fall down and worship him in Matthew 4. And if he did, Jesus would rule the world second to Satan. In fact, this is the most dangerous deception that Satan has on earth at this time is the counterfeiting of false Christs. Jesus himself warned in Matthew 24, verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Satan has a fourth objective, and that is to steal glory. To steal glory. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Verse 14. Now, we're obviously in the midst of some figurative language here because we can ascend above actual clouds, just climb in an airplane and we can do that. Satan's not saying he wants to go higher than the atmospheric clouds. The best reference here in connection to clouds is with the glory of God. Clouds and the glory of God figuratively, figuratively go together often in Scripture. Exodus 13 Job 37, Matthew 26, Revelation 14, other places. The clouds speak of the glory of God. But here's the important part. It's not just that Satan desired to reflect the glory of God. He desired to be equal to the glory of God. He desired to be above the glory of God. Reflecting the glory of God isn't bad. In fact, the New Testament says that we will be glorified, but this is reflective glory. This is derived glory. It's not glory in and of ourselves. Our glory is ultimately founded only in God's glory. The moon wants to shine bright, but it only shines brightly because it's reflecting the sun. God clearly said in Isaiah 42, 8, though, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And Satan because he cannot have glory in and of himself, wants to steal God's glory. Not reflect it, steal it. And there's a fifth objective. Satan wants to possess everything. He wants to possess everything. He says, I will make myself like the Most High, in the end of verse 14. The Most High is a title for God that re- refers to his dominion over heaven and earth. In fact, Genesis fourteen nineteen calls him... God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. He owns it all. And now, I want want to be very clear about this. Satan didn't want to be unlike God. He respected God's authority, respected God's position, respected his power. He didn't want to be unlike God. He just wanted to be in God's place. He wanted to be where God is. He wanted to have it all. He wanted to possess it all. One small problem. God already has it and he's not letting it go. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's 
and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So those are the five objectives of Satan. He would usurp God. He would dominate creation. He would replace Jesus. He would steal glory. He would possess everything. Now, how does this work itself out? I figured at some point in this series, I wanted to just go through Satan's story. And so you can see how his objectives, how his inner heart, his wicked desires work themselves out throughout the story of history. I want to demonstrate to you how he's attempted to enact his objectives. I was tempted to have you turn to a few texts, but we're going to be in a lot of them. So you might just uh, follow along, maybe note a reference But I want you to pay attention to a word I'll keep using over and over again, and that is the word then. That means the next thing is happening. We don't start with then because we have to start at the beginning. Before creation, God created Satan. We're going to go in chronological order. Before creation, God created Satan. In other words, before the creation of the world, the universe. Nehemiah 9 verse 6 said that God made all the hosts, the angels of heaven, And what was their purpose? Nehemiah 9, 6 says, The host of heaven worships you. Psalm 148, 2, Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. In fact, all the angels, including Satan, the day star, the most brilliant of them all, were created by the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.16 says that thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Did you catch that? Satan was created to worship Christ. He was created to fall down before him, to give him honor, to give him glory, to give him worship, to give him praise. And then when Jesus Christ created the heavens and the earth, as Hebrews 1-2 says that it is the Son of God through whom God the Father created the world, when the Son of God created the universe and our world, you know what Job 38 says? It says that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, the angelic realm, shouted for joy. Once upon a time, the angel renamed Satan shouted for joy at the creation of Jesus Christ of all the universe and the world. The day star was a devoted worshiper of Christ. Then... After creation, Satan was assigned to guard the Garden of Eden. After creation, Satan was assigned to guard the Garden of Eden. His beauty and his magnificence was to shine forth. He was to be some sort of servant to Adam and Eve. Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 13, records, listen to this, the heartache of God at the rebellion of this beautiful creature, You were in Eden, he says, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. In other words, Satan was a creature beyond description. He was beautiful. He sparkled like every fine stone. On the day that you were created, they were prepared He says, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You can hear the grief of God. You can hear the heartache of God. Then, Satan willfully fell into sin. Satan willfully fell into sin. Ezekiel 28 continues in verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. 
till unrighteousness was founded in you, you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Our text here in Isaiah 14 intimates for us that Satan looked at his own glory, reflected glory, and said, I can be like God. Then, after Satan's fall into sin, he attacked mankind through Eve. After Satan's fall into sin, he attacked mankind through Eve. We saw a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, Satan's deception of Eve, convincing her that God's word was not true and that she should, as Satan did, desire to be like God. And he convinced her. 1 Timothy 2.14 says that the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Sin entered into her. But God, who had sovereignly allowed the entrance of sin into his perfect creation, while never touching sin himself because he's holy, he had allowed sin such that his plan of redemption now could highlight his grace and his mercy and his kindness. Without sin, there's no need of grace. Without sin, there's no need of mercy. And so now God is able to highlight these glorious attributes. Then, in the Garden of Eden, God pronounced Satan's curse. In the Garden of Eden, God pronounced Satan's curse. Genesis 3.15, called in Latin sometimes the first gospel I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in this curse of Satan, God has promised a Messiah, the seed of woman, the very creator son of God, whom Satan had rejoiced at and worshipped at the creation of all things. While he was on earth, Jesus himself pronounced in John sixteen eleven, the ruler of this world is judged. And even for us, to the Christians, the Apostle Paul promised in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Satan was cursed in the garden, doomed to future judgment. Now, the next time in history that we see Satan highlighted in the scriptures is in the time of the patriarchs, and probably around the 23rd century B.C. Then Satan appears before God to accuse Job. Satan appears before God to accuse Job. And now what we're going to see is a long historical pattern of Satan going after God's men. Job was a righteous man. He was a worshiper of God in the ancient Near East. He was wealthy both in material goods and in family and in faith. And so Satan accused Job. Job 1 beginning in verse 8 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. You know what this is? This is the first challenge to security of salvation. That's what Satan goes after. God has allowed Satan to afflict Job then. And while Job had some lessons to learn along the way, his ultimate response was that he kept his faith. Because God kept his faith, 
Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. Yes, he's in grief, but he fell on the ground and worshipped. It was only his unbelieving wife who said, curse God and die. Now, in history's next recorded encounter with Satan, Satan is concerned with his future. And for some reason, the scripture doesn't tell us directly. He gets into a battle over something. The next encounter happens in 1406 B.C. Then Satan battles for the body of Moses. Satan battles for the body of Moses. Jude 9 records the archangel Michael in a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. Now, when I was a little kid and I remember reading this in Jude 9, I I had this picture of Satan pulling on the leg of the body of Moses and Jesus, or, or Michael rather, pulling on the arm of the body of Moses. Didn't occur to me that that's not what's happening. This is a spiritual battle. We're not told why, but Satan wanted to control the physical remains of Moses. We're not told why, but I think all of Scripture tells us why, because there's really only one possible reason, and that is to somehow try to prevent future resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection of the saints tells us that your actual body will be resurrected. Now, two little interesting notes here about this battle for the body of Moses. First of all, you you recall that Moses appeared in bodily form at the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus Christ and with Elijah, the prophet, in Matthew 17. So perhaps Satan was trying to prevent that future meeting. But the second interesting note, you recall that in Revelation chapter 11, there are two prophets of God, two witnesses who will appear in Jerusalem during the Great Tribulation. They'll be preaching the gospel, performing miracles that are identical to the miracles of Elijah and... Moses, their ministry will lead to the judgment of the unbelieving antichrist-led leaders of the city of Jerusalem, and it will lead to the salvation of all the Jews in Jerusalem at that time. There's very, very good evidence that those two men actually are, in fact, Elijah and Moses. What happened to Elijah? You remember? He didn't die. He was taken up into heaven. This is God giving him his chance now to die because those two guys are going to die. They'll be killed. Three and a half days later, they'll be raised from the dead. And at that moment, as they're ascending into heaven, God will save the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, we see Satan's schemes in history once again in the 10th century B.C. And this time he again goes after God's servant. This time it's King David. Then, Satan provoked King David to sin. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel, to take a census. Satan hated Israel. He still does. She is God's chosen nation, and from her would come Messiah. And I would have to say, as a side note, any theology that says that God is done forever with Israel must not originate with God. It must originate with the one who hates Israel. And so Satan incited King David to an act of willful pride to take a census to see not how great God is, but to see how great David is. And so he counted his people, and this brought God's swift retribution, which cost Israel 70,000 deaths due to a plague sent by God. Satan would continue to influence leaders. Just over a century later, he would influence another Jewish king. Then, Satan deceived King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. Satan deceived King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Both 1 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 18 record that a satanic lying spirit was sent to Ahab to tell him that he would have success in battle. Go out to battle. But in fact, this was used by God to draw King Ahab, who was wicked, into the very battle that would kill him. Now, in the next century, once again, Satan goes after a king. This time it's the king of Babylon. Then, Satan manipulated the king of Babylon. Satan manipulated the king of Babylon. This brings us back to our text here in Isaiah 14. The two layers of Satan and the king of Babylon. Now, why would Satan want the king of Babylon to be aggressive, to be successful, to be powerful? Who cares about the king of Babylon? Well, very simply, so that Babylon might come against God's people, Israel. And that's exactly what they did. Now, the little part that you and I know is that that was God's plan all along to punish Israel, and God was then going to punish Babylon. For all of history, Satan keeps on stepping in the pothole of God's plan every time. But the king of Babylon had his doom pronounced by God. Verse 11 of chapter 14 here. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. And so the human king goes to his destruction. Now you can begin to see a pattern. Yet again, Satan will go after a king. Then Satan manipulated the king of Tyre. Satan manipulated the king of Tyre. Tyre was the Canaanite Phoenician city-state just to the north of Israel. It was very powerful, very wealthy, very influential. And in the 6th century BC, Satan, Satan interjected himself into this city. And similar to the Isaiah 14 text, Ezekiel 28 layers both Satan and the king of Tyre together. And Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 19, exposes the king of Tyre as filled with satanic pride, as a cheat, as a liar, filled with self-exaltation. In the 5th century B.C., after many Israelites had now returned from exile, Satan inserts himself once again, this time not against the king, but against the high priest of Israel. Then, Satan accused the high priest of Israel. Satan accused the high priest of Israel. Now, this high priest of Israel, his name was Joshua. Not the same Joshua as the conquest. They're a thousand years apart. But this high priest was charged by God to lead Israel back to worthy and righteous worship of God. But Satan didn't want this to take place. Because this worthy and righteous worship of God was going to take place in the rebuilt, reconstituted, holy city, Jerusalem. And this is the city from which Messiah will reign someday. So Satan doesn't want Jerusalem to be successful. Certainly doesn't want the worship of God. So he goes after, like he does today, and he accuses God's men. Zechariah 3, beginning in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, Jerusalem is lost and in the midst of destruction. And what is God's ultimate plan for Jerusalem? To pluck her out and to save her. Well, during all this time, Satan has been going after God's men, going after Israel. Because if he can destroy Israel then Messiah will never come. 
But once his efforts to prevent Messiah Jesus from coming to earth failed, now he has to turn his sights on Jesus himself. And that brings us to the first century. Then Satan tried to kill Jesus Christ as a child. Satan tried to kill Jesus Christ as a child. Through King Herod, Satan went after Jesus, killing all the little boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem. The weeping there must have been overwhelming. In fact, Revelation 12.4 explains that Satan the dragon, quote, stood before the woman, that is Israel, who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And he tried to devour the child through King Herod. He failed. Verse 5 says of Revelation 12, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And he didn't get him. Why? Because God got Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus out to Egypt. Satan couldn't kill Jesus, so he tried to influence him as he had done so easily, so successfully with King David and King Ahab. Piece of cake, right? Well, Satan still didn't get who he was messing with. Then, Satan tried to tempt Jesus to avoid the cross. Satan tried to tempt Jesus to avoid the cross, the cross of salvation, the cross of redemption. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, all record that before Jesus began his ministry, he's in the wilderness and he's now subjected to the temptation of Satan. And Satan tempted Jesus in three ways. First, he tempted him with personal fulfillment. He tempted him with personal fulfillment. Jesus had been fasting and Satan tempted him to do a miracle, to make bread for himself, to fulfill himself. And if you look carefully at all the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels, they're never for himself. The second way Satan tempted Jesus was with selfish glory and honor. With selfish glory and honor, Satan tempted Jesus to jump off a high place, a place that would have taken him about five seconds to hit the ground, by the way, just enough time as Satan quoted a psalm to Jesus saying, the angels will bear you up. In other words, the temptation was, jump off this. The angels of God will come and in sight of everyone will save you and you'll be established as the great king. And then third Satan tempted Jesus with the instant rule of the whole world. He tempted him with the instant rule of the whole world without going to the cross, without the pain, without the humiliation, without the degradation, without the torture, without the rejection, on one condition, that Jesus would bow and bend the knee to Satan. But Jesus Christ is the Son of God, very God. He is impeccable. It is impossible for him to sin. He resisted each and every one of Satan's attempts. And Jesus ends the conversation, Matthew 4.10. He says, be gone, Satan. Now, if Satan couldn't get to Christ quite yet, then he would go after his beloved people, the most vulnerable among them. He would do what criminals do to go after the vulnerable family members of the one he really wants to get. And so Satan goes after the weakest. Then Satan physically disabled a precious Israelite woman. Satan physically disabled a precious Israelite woman. Luke 13 records that the woman came to a synagogue in Galilee to hear Jesus proclaim the gospel. And she'd been oppressed by Satan for 18 years. She was bent over and she couldn't get up. She couldn't straighten for almost two decades Jesus healed her. The text says she glorified God. But the wicked ruler of the synagogue 
a servant of Satan, he rebuked Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And so clearly there was a battle going on there. Now the closer Calvary came, the closer Golgotha came, the closer the cross of Jesus Christ, which would spell Satan's doom. The closer it came, it would spell his doom because now humanity would be freed from sin. The closer the cross came, the more Satan turned up the heat. And so the next time to get Jesus away from the cross, it would come through his very close friend, perhaps best friend, Peter. Then Satan uses Peter to tempt Jesus away from the cross. Here's the logic. If Jesus will listen to anyone, he'll listen to Peter. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21, And from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter, best friend, the one whom Jesus might most likely listen to, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So that failed. And so, in fact, once again, if Satan couldn't yet get to Jesus, then he would go after his men. Then Satan tried to destroy Peter's faith in Christ. Satan tried to destroy Peter's faith in Christ. He already tried with Job and failed. Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, beginning in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, Peter would fail. He would fail. He would deny Christ three times. But ultimately, because of the intercessory prayer of Christ, his faith would not fail. His faith would stand And why would Satan want to go after Peter? Because Peter is the head of the apostles, the one who would lead the charge for the gospel in the coming decades. But now, Satan's desperate. The cross is coming. It's right around the corner. So Satan throws everything he has at Jesus, including the heartbreaking betrayal of one of his closest friends, Judas. Then, Satan entered Judas to betray Jesus. Satan entered Judas to betray Jesus. John 13, 2 records that in the upper room where Jesus was with his disciples, quote, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. In the verse 27 of John 13, Satan enters into Judas and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now remember this. We've talked about this before. I won't go into a lot of detail, but it was not and it was never ever satan's goal to get jesus to the cross that was never satan's goal how do we know this because jesus going to the cross was god's will it was god's will acts 2 23 says that jesus was delivered up quote according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god killed by the hands of lawless men no satan's goal was to keep jesus from the cross First, he tried to keep Jesus from ever being born by getting Israel's leaders to destroy their own nation from inside by their own disobedience. Then he tried to kill Jesus as a small child. Then he tried to tempt Jesus to avoid the cross and simply take the whole world for himself. And then he tried to influence Jesus through Peter. And now, 
Satan is loathing every weapon he has. He is arming up. He's giving the agony of betrayal by a close friend, the coming degradation and the pain and the humiliation of his trials, the coming torture of the cross. All of this is because Satan is rolling the dice that at some point Jesus will say, enough, I give up. In fact, this was a possibility. Jesus himself even said, In Matthew 26, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But Satan failed. He did not know who he was dealing with. Jesus went all the way to Calvary to die for your sins, to die for mine. He defeated Satan's attempt to lead all mankind away from God. But if Satan couldn't defeat Jesus, then he would try to defeat the people of Jesus and he wasted no time. At the inception of the early church, when the ascended Jesus Christ had had barely sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the new believers, Satan entered into history once again. Then, Satan tried to infiltrate the church. Satan tried to infiltrate the church, and he would try this through Ananias. Acts chapter 5 records that when the new church was funding the ministry and helping one another financially, and they're just bursting at the seams, Acts 5 But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Ananias had been dishonest, and he was attempting to look really good. He was attempting, essentially, to say, I am giving the biggest gift ever. When a wicked man gives a giant gift to the church, why is it? It's always because he wants something in return. He wants something back. And had Ananias been successful, he would have been hailed as a hero for his generous gift within the church, and Satan would have a man on the inside in the leadership of the brand new church of Jerusalem. A couple of decades later, the focus of God's work in the world now has shifted to the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, and once again, Satan went after God's man. Then, Satan hampered Paul's ministry to an effective church, He hampered Paul's ministry to an effective church. Satan doesn't mess with ineffective churches. They're already doing his job for him. So he goes to the effective churches. This was the young church at Thessalonica. They had, if you recall, they they barely had had a few months with the Apostle Paul. All these brand new believers. And Paul was forced to leave the city. But they very quickly became effective. 1 Thessalonians 1 outlines what many feel is the most effective church in the New Testament. The problem was they didn't know anything. They hadn't been taught very much. You know, I, I, a brand new believer would say to a, a Thessalonian believer, uh, can you disciple me? Sure, I got two weeks worth of stuff. And after that, I'm out. And so Paul, he wanted to come back. He wanted to return to them. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to strengthen them. He wanted to encourage this exploding ministry that Paul wrote them in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, quote, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, But Satan hindered us. 
in some way from outside the church, Satan hindered Paul. But next, Satan would try to destroy Paul's ministry from inside the church. Can't do it from outside, do it from inside. Then, Satan tormented Paul by means of a church leader. Satan tormented Paul by means of a church leader. Paul had received these great revelations from God. And God determined to keep Paul humble. So he allowed and he used Satan to do this. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, many have theorized that his thorn in the flesh was some sort of physical malady. He did have one, according to the book of Galatians. But a messenger, an angelos, an angel, is always used either of an actual angel or a human messenger. And in this case, this is a demonically inspired human messenger of Satan, a tormentor within the church. Now, Paul had options. Like any minister of the gospel, he could have escaped this torment. How? Simply by not doing the work of the ministry. But instead, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, he said, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, the rest of Satan's activities in history are not really history, but yet to be. They are in prophecy after the rapture of the church and the installation of Antichrist upon the earth, then Satan will be banished from direct access to God. Satan will be banished from direct access to God. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 9. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Remember, Satan and his angels have been allowed access to heaven. We saw that in the book of Job. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So now, Satan's going to throw everything he has at Israel. Why? He couldn't prevent the birth of Christ But if there's no restored Israel, then Christ will not have a kingdom over which to reign. He wants to keep them from coming to true faith in Christ. Then, after he's thrown down, Satan will attempt to torment faithful Jews. Satan will attempt to torment faithful Jews. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, that is Israel, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years. The last three and a half years of the great tribulation. And then the rest of the text says that the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth, but the earth came to help and swallowed this river. And then the dragon became furious with the woman. Why? Because she escaped. Apparently, these countless Jews who have now come to saving faith in Christ, according to Zechariah 12.10, are hidden in the wilderness, and the dragon's furious. And so he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. All the Jews around the world. And by the way, 
If you just read Revelation 13, 14, and 15, you see just this absolute massacre and slaughter of those who were following Christ, both Jew and Gentile, during this time. During this time, to deceive the world, then Satan will empower Antichrist. He'll attempt to completely mimic Messiah and mimic the signs of Messiah. Then Satan will perform mighty miracles on the earth. He'll perform mighty miracles on the earth. Revelation 16, beginning in verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And what was the purpose of all these signs? It was to convince the kings of the earth to battle the coming king of kings. We call that in Scripture the Battle of Armageddon. Satan will lose that battle and be captured. Then Christ will bind Satan for a thousand years. Christ will bind Satan for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, during this time, the earth, during the reign of Christ on earth, will know prosperity and faithfulness like never before as all the glorified saints from the church age, that's us, are ruling alongside Christ. But the survivors of the Great Tribulation have continued having children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren for a thousand years, and many would be used by Satan. Then Christ will release Satan for one last showdown. Christ will release Satan for one last showdown. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That is Jerusalem. Here we go again. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And finally, finally, Satan's reign of terror, which began in the Garden of Eden, a reign which will still result in your physical death and mine, though you're spiritually safe in Christ, his reign as the ruler of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the dragon, that serpent of old, it will finally be at an end because then Christ will send Satan to hell. Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the complete biblical story of Satan. 27 instances that he inserts himself into history. The ways he has been trying and is trying today to fulfill his objectives. And here's the irony These are the same objectives. These are the same sins that the spiritually blind and proud unbeliever that they're steeped in. It's exactly the same. The unbeliever would usurp God. I will ascend to heaven. The unbeliever has been convinced that he can stand before God on his own merits, that he can ascend to heaven. Remember, 
To think that you can outweigh your sins with some sort of good deeds is like a serial killer saying, I want to be acquitted because I was a Cub Scout. No, the sins must still be accounted for. The unbeliever would dominate creation. I will set my throne on high above the stars of God. Instead of worshiping God, the the unbeliever craves dominion, craves power, craves to worship at his own altar. The unbeliever craves to replace Jesus. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. The major sin of the unbeliever is the refusal to acknowledge what? The lordship of Christ. That Christ is king. That you must bow and submit to Christ by means of repentance. Jesus couldn't have been more clear. In Mark 8, 34, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and do what? Follow me. Christ follows no one. Jesus said clearly in Luke eleven twenty three 23, Whoever is not with me is against me. There is no neutral in the kingdom of Christ. You either bow to him or you're guilty of trying to replace him. The unbeliever would steal glory. They would steal glory. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. You know what secular humanism, liberal ideology, atheism, socialism, Marxism, you know what they all have in common? It begins with the presupposition that mankind is basically good. It begins there. And ironically, when the leaders of these ideologies, what they really believe is, I am a good person and therefore I need to run your life for you and the privileges I give myself, I will not extend to you. That's the end result. And the unbeliever would possess everything. He would possess everything. I will make myself like the Most High. Listen very carefully. Every single sin is rooted in pride and a desire to possess something. Every sin. Possess money, possess power, possess satisfaction, possess control. It is all about possession. What did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Leave it all behind. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? Give it all up. Turn around to your servant. Give him the key to your house and say, I'm never going back. But he wouldn't do it. By the way, these are the same sins that the believer in Christ must be wary of. They smack of your old nature. This actually serves as a very useful self-examination checklist on anything you're doing. Am I usurping God's role? Am I motivated by domination instead of submission? Am I replacing the lordship of Jesus Christ when I determine to do something displeasing to him? Am I believing in my heart that I deserve credit for something that's been given freely by the grace of God? Am I motivated by a desire to possess, to control, to have? Or can I simply be crucified with Christ and I no longer live? It's a great checklist for us too, isn't it? But now, instead of the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, we now have the spirit of God. And we can ask and answer these questions and continue to be conformed to the image of the Son of God until that day we join God. And by God's grace, there will be a day when we can honestly say, I will never usurp God. I will never be motivated by domination. I will never replace the lordship of Jesus Christ. I will never steal the glory of God. And I will never desire to possess 
And instead, what does the book of Revelation show all the Christians in heaven doing? Taking the crown of their glory, the crown of their reward, the crown of their inheritance, and taking it off their heads and doing what? Casting their crowns before God and saying, all that I have is yours. And that will be our great joy. Won't that be a good day? Someday, those who would usurp God will be completely separated from you and you will never see them again, ever. And someday, Satan will join his own children. But for now, we keep fighting the good fight. We battle with the spiritual weapons given to us in Scripture. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the, oh, the, the warning signs in Scripture dozens of them, to beware of the evil one, to be wary, to be spiritually alert. And you have given us the weapons of warfare, of the, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the, the, the shoes of gospel preparation, the sword of the Spirit. How thankful we are to you, Lord, for not leaving us unarmed against this wicked adversary. But we are in Christ Jesus. And we think of John writing that these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We thank you, Lord, that though Satan is a, like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour, yet we are protected. Yes, he may scratch and claw and bite and he may render great damage, but he can never steal our faith. Just like he could never steal the faith of Job, just like he could never steal the faith of Peter, he cannot steal our faith. And for that, we give you thanks, we give you glory, we give you honor. You have our eternal gratitude. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.